Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light. Each week I speak to leading thinkers from around the world about Robert Menzies, his life, his era and his enduring legacy. Hello, and on this episode of Afternoon Light, I'm talking to Liz Tynan, who is an associate professor in the Graduate Research School at James Cook University, and she's the author of several books on British atomic testing in Australia, including the most recent one, The Secret of Emu Field, Britain's Forgotten Atomic Tests in Australia, published by New South Press, and welcome to Afternoon Light, Liz. It's a pleasure to be here, Georgina. Thanks for having me. It's a huge pleasure for me. It's been really interesting to research this topic because as someone who grew up in South Australia where many of the British atomic tests took place, I must say I did not know very much about it, which is a source of shame for me and now I feel like I am about to write that wrong and learn a lot more from you, who must be one of the very few experts on this really interesting and quite sort of shocking period in our history. Yes, I think I've been delving into it now for about 18 or 19 years. So I certainly have developed quite a few insights and I'd love to be able to share them with you. Oh, thank you, Liz. Let's start at the beginning. So we really, I guess, in the middle of World War II and nuclear weapons are being developed by the British and the Americans. So, I mean, and Australia had scientists there, of course, Sir Mark Oliphant being our most famous one as part of that project. But what were the British doing in the development of nuclear weapons? It's a very interesting story and I think it's a story that not many people realise. They tend to think that America developed atomic weaponry. But in fact, most of the early intellectual work was not done in America. It was actually um, done in Britain or on the continent. It's very interesting how science and history kind of converged at this time. So in 1939, there were many, many articles, scientific journal articles starting to appear on the science of nuclear fission, Mm. the splitting of the atom. And some earlier work had been done earlier in the 30s on the physics behind that. In fact, there'd been quite a flowering of physics research. Nuclear physics was still a relatively young science. And there were quite a few new insights that were coming out. And a lot of that was happening either in Britain or on the continent. There was a lot happening in Paris as well, but certainly in Britain, there was quite a bit happening. Now, because of the rise of Nazi Germany and the bigotry against Jewish people, a number of Jewish refugees came to Britain. And among those were some highly skilled physicists. And a couple of those physicists in particular went to work at the University of Birmingham, where our very own Mark Oliphant was working as well. And Mark Oliphant embraced these physicists and brought them into the physics work that he was doing. And two of these physicists were instrumental, really, in the start of the bomb building project. They created a three-page memorandum, a very simple document actually quite straightforward in its language, that explained how the technical difficulties in building a feasible weapon on the basis of nuclear fission might be overcome. Now, Mark Oliphant recognised the significance of this memorandum immediately and was instrumental in getting it to the very top of the British government, quick smart. I think he recognised straight away as the war was starting that it was going to be very crucial for the Allies to have access to this knowledge. So the British government, upon receiving this memorandum, they instituted what became known as the MAUD Committee, which is the Military Applications of Uranium Detonation. But it's also called MAUD as in the woman's name because that was the name of the nanny of Niels Bohr, the great Danish physicist who used to spend time in London. So It was called that without uppercase. It was just called the Maud Committee. And the Maud Committee was charged with finding out the feasibility of the ideas that were contained in this memorandum, the uh, the so-called Frischpels Memorandum. Anyway, the Maud Committee, in secret, under its auspices, a certain amount of research was carried out, which determined that it was feasible. And that had 
started in April of 1940, so very soon after the war had started. And upon reporting to the British government that this was feasible, the British government then created the world's first nuclear weapons research establishment, which went by the enigmatic name of Tube Alloys. It was deliberately enigmatic. It was meant to sound like an industrial project of some kind, something very boring that most people would not be interested in. Tube alloys were actually a component of the Maud Committee's work, but they chose that name deliberately to keep it hidden. And Tube Alloys began its work in September of 1941. And in the meantime, Mark Oliphant, who was party to what was going on in the Maud Committee and in Tube Alloys, he took a lot of this knowledge across the Atlantic to the Americans. Now, the Manhattan Project had already been named, but it wasn't really party to the high-level physics that had been undertaken by the Moore Committee or Tube Alloys. It had been set up because Albert Einstein, the great physicist, he had signed a letter. It was actually written by other physicists, but he had sent a letter to President Roosevelt to explain the possibility of this doomsday weapon that physicists were starting to get their heads around. So he was aware of the project going on in the UK and at the University of Birmingham then by this stage. That's right. He wasn't aware at the very start, but he Mm. became aware of it. And so on the basis of the Einstein letter, he had set up something called the Manhattan Project, but it didn't have access to the tube alloys research just yet. But ultimately, tube alloys, the report from tube alloys, highly classified, of course, went across the Atlantic. And from that moment, in about 1942, when that information went across the Atlantic, then Manhattan Project really started to take off at that point. Why did the British decide to share the tube alloys project with the United States? Because, you know, that's, of course, I mean, by that stage, 41, the US is not involved in the war. Of course, the British are hoping that the US will become involved. It's not till Pearl Harbor that the US decides to become involved in the war. So that was a bit of a punt, releasing some incredibly sensitive research to hopefully your ally and hopefully some a country that's joining your efforts but potentially not it's a very important point it's to do with the fact that britain was facing the blitz and the country was under sustained attack from the air from nazi germany and there was recognition that although they had this extremely important research knowledge that it was probably risky to bring it to fruition in a country that was under such sustained attack. And so a strategic decision was made to transfer that to the United States, which was relatively safe. Mm. And it was already helping the Allies with Lend-Lease and the various ways that they were supporting Britain and other Allies in their fight against Nazi Germany. But I have to say, although there was a sense of them being allies in this battle, that they didn't trust each other very much. And (laughs) that comes out later, doesn't it? It's quite extraordinary. (laughs) I think it is extraordinary. And so Churchill, the wartime British Prime Minister, and Roosevelt, the wartime American president, worked on negotiating an agreement called the Quebec Agreement, which was finalised in about 1943, which finally determined the terms of how Britain and America would cooperate on nuclear weaponry. It was a very secret agreement and it was painstakingly negotiated and Britain didn't get everything it wanted because the agreement did exclude Britain from some of the technical aspects of the development of the bomb. And they were thinking ahead post-war as well to civilian energy. It did put some limitations on, for instance, it allowed Americans to make the first decisions about certain aspects of civilian nuclear energy, for example. Why do you think that Britain gave up so much in a project that it was instrumental in developing? Its scientists and the refugee scientists were instrumental in developing. It seems like Britain was then allowing the US to take the lead and to call the shots in the development of or civil and military uses of nuclear. They weren't terribly happy about it. (laughs) So they were wanting to hold on to as much influence over the project as they could. However, they did recognise that America had many more resources 
not only was it safer, but it had space, it had uranium. Until 1939, uranium was virtually useless. It had virtually no economic value. But just before the war broke out, some of this knowledge started to be created around the possibility. And uranium was the radioactive material of choice for this kind of weapon. Suddenly, the uranium stocks in the world were being bought up, including by Nazi Germany. Oh, so. Yeah. It became apparent that Nazi Germany was acquiring uranium. This added to the urgency and America had managed to acquire uranium. If I remember correctly, a lot of it came from the Congo at that time. So, and Britain was not really in a position to get hold of the raw materials and to build technically sophisticated weapon when it was under attack the way that it was. And so that Quebec agreement was instrumental in ensuring that Britain would have an ongoing role. And so that allowed what they called the British Mission, which was a group of scientists and technologists to travel to America. It was led by William Penny, who later led most of the test series held in Australia. He was a brilliant mathematical physicist with two PhDs. I mean, I think one is quite enough, really, (laughs) having done one myself. But he had two PhDs. He was a very creative brain. He was a mathematical physicist. He had a very good understanding of the theory. And he led that mission. Now, what they didn't know in that mission, there were several spies. Ah. And that later became very significant when we talk about what happened after the war with the development of nuclear weapons. But in the meantime, the British mission did contribute quite a bit to the Manhattan Project. And in fact, Ernest Titterton, who also had quite a role in the Australian tests, He was the one who turned the dial on the Trinity test in July of 1945 in New Mexico that tested the product of the Manhattan Project, which was the world's first atomic weapon. And Ernest Titterton, he later moved to Australia and joined the ANU, where he stayed for the rest of his life. Oh, really? Yes. And my father worked with him, actually knew him. And he was... A little notorious in this story, actually, as Australia's Dr. Strangelove. And that's an interesting story in itself. So William Penny, Ernest Titterton, and a number of other people, they initially worked out of Canada, but then Penny in particular, plus one of the spies who I can tell you about, if you like, were centrally involved in the development of that weapon. So there is this espionage issue, which of course leads to the US ceasing to collaborate with the British scientists, with the British at all on this project. This is after the end of World War II, isn't it? So the US has dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the war has ended. So the British were obviously clearly unaware of the spies in their ranks. Were these British scientists who were spies in their ranks or were they part of the foreign scientists who joined them as refugees? Both, actually. The first one who was uncovered was a British scientist called Alan Nunn-May who had been radicalised at Cambridge like the more famous Cambridge set. So it was basically a John le Carre novel. It's basically a John le Carre novel. It's it's got everything. It's got the spies. It's got the mad scientists. It's got the politicians. It's got the journalists. It's got everything. With a touch of Ian Fleming, maybe? Oh, there's more than a touch. (laughs) Let's hope. So Alan Nunmay was a relatively low-level Manhattan Project worker. He was based in Montreal. There was quite a bit going on in Canada. And he was recruited there by Soviet military intelligence. He was already ideologically disposed because he had become a communist during his time at Cambridge. And he did it for ideological reasons and not for money. He wasn't really paid very much. I think he got a bottle of whiskey or something like that. But when a Soviet spy defected to the US and gave up all his contacts, Alan Nunmay was uncovered as a spy in 1946. And he went to prison for about nine years. But that was the catalyst for America to bring in the Atomic Energy Act, or became known as the McMahon Act, which forbade America to cooperate with any other country, not just Britain, but any other country. 
Now, there's some speculation that this was very convenient for America because they wanted to corner the market and they needed an excuse not to share their technology with others. And Britain was very much wrong-footed by this. They were not expecting this. They thought that the Quebec Agreement would continue after the war and they would continue to work with the Americans and that was their preference. Despite the McMahon Act, back channels started to develop where they were starting to share a little bit again until 1950 when a refugee scientist known as Klaus Fuchs, he was uncovered. He never went to trial, but he did confess and he was jailed. Now, Fuchs was a different kind of physicist to Alan Nunmay. Alan Nunmay was on the fringes of the Manhattan Project. Klaus Fuchs was at the centre and Klaus Fuchs was a far more damaging spy than Alan Nunmay and it's said that his spying, along with the American spy Ted Hall, between them they gave the Soviet Union the wherewithal to build their own bomb, which they tested in 1949. So this was highly technical knowledge. As opposed to, say, the Cambridge spies, the more famous spies who mainly gave sort of strategic information, But Klaus Fuchs was giving technical information about the development of this weaponry. And that's how the Soviet Union managed to obtain the bomb so quickly after the war. And so once Fuchs was uncovered politically in America, any collaboration with Britain became very poisonous. Well, on military in general, that I guess started a trend, didn't it, where the the US through legislation were not allowed to give special equipment or military assets the know-how to build them to even allies like Australia so and the United Kingdom. So it's, it wasn't just for the nuclear realm. It extended to you know, their planes, their submarines and the like. It absolutely did. And in fact, you know, they often say there was more distrust between the Allies during the Cold War than between the so-called enemies. And certainly America didn't trust Britain, but they certainly didn't trust Australia either. And there was a certain amount of national pride involved in Britain going it alone with development of their own weapon because they wanted to show the Americans that they could do it. And so it came down to a secret cabinet meeting on the 8th of January 1947. That is a key date in the history of British atomic weapons development. A secret cabinet meeting called Gen 163 met at Whitehall and they were sitting around waiting for Ernest Bevan, the foreign minister, to turn up and he was running late. And the ones who were already there, they had more or less thought, we can't afford to build this bomb. It's too expensive. It's going to cost tens or hundreds of millions of pounds. And so let's just see what America does, but we won't go ahead. And then Ernest Bevan turns up a bit late horrified to find that they've apparently made this decision not to proceed. And he turns them around in that meeting and gets them to agree. And he famously said, we have to have this weapon and it has to have a Union Jack on it. And right. that so that element of, that. of national pride, that we need our own British atomic weapon that's created by our scientists. Yeah, that's right. It comes through so many of the documents how much they did not trust the Americans. They were angry with the Americans for withdrawing from the agreement. Churchill later, when he came back to power in 51, tried to revive the Quebec agreement with Eisenhower. And Eisenhower said, I've never even heard of this agreement and I don't want it anyway. And so there was a certain amount of defiance in their decision to go ahead, but they certainly did not realise, I think at that point, how expensive it was going to be. By the time Churchill came back in 1951, the amount of money spent on research and development was kind of buried and hidden in the national accounts. But at that point, it was about £100 million wow. in that era's money. Clement Attlee, the Labor Prime Minister, presided over the early research and development stages. And he appointed a war hero, Lord Portal, Charles Portal, as the what was known as the controller of atomic energy, which I've always thought is a rather science fiction kind of term. Yeah. But <laughs> Very cold war. And very he cold was war. very cold war. And even before that decision by the secret cabinet, of committee in January 47, Portal was already behind the scenes gearing up for having to get the resources, so the uranium and build the reactors and do all the things they needed to start not just nuclear weapons, but nuclear energy. And the two were very much in parallel. You know, they were running together, those two ideas of nuclear armaments and nuclear energy. 
And one of the very big boosters of that was a fellow called Frederick Lindemann, who had been Churchill's close confidant during the war. And he was himself a scientist. And he was a great believer in relieving Britain of the difficulties associated with energy from fossil fuels. He he wanted nuclear energy and he saw that as the way of the future that would power the next British Industrial Revolution. Was that because Britain didn't have great resources of fossil fuels? Because presumably this was not with any particular reference to the emissions coming out of coal-fired power stations. It was absolutely not connected with the ideas around climate change. No, it was more to do with industrial efficiencies, I think, that were involved with the idea of nuclear energy. And Lindemann, also known as Lord Cherwell, people might perhaps know him better as Lord Cherwell. He was part of the committees during the Clement Attlee era, even though he was a Tory, but he was part of the Labor committees in that era. And then, of course, when Churchill came back, he was given a cabinet position. And he was chief among the influential Brits who were very opposed to appeasing the Americans, you know, trying to get back with the Americans. He said, no, we have to do this alone. We have a whole Commonwealth that we can draw upon and we should not be beholden to the Americans. And a lot of his rhetoric, and it comes through in a lot of the secret correspondence between him and Churchill, just how much he didn't trust the Americans. Very interesting. Yeah, that is a fascinating insight and certainly comes out in a lot of Menzies' writings and thinking throughout that era too that, you know, the Americans are a bit unreliable when it comes to foreign policy and might take the wrong approach on particularly the rise of communist regimes throughout Asia and particularly Southeast Asia. He was very, very nervous about their judgment. So Robert Menzies as Prime Minister of Australia from 49, he's interested, he and his ministers are, are interested in Australia getting a nuclear weapon, which I don't think a lot of people are aware. And we've had Wayne Reynolds, who was at the University of New South Wales and has written quite a bit on the development or attempts to develop a nuclear weapon in Australia on the podcast too to talk about this. But Australia becomes quite important, incredibly important for the British project to develop atomic weapons, doesn't it, Liz? It does, although Britain did not want to test in Australia. Britain, once it was excluded from American test sites, it sought to investigate Canada as the place where it wanted to test and particularly a place called Churchill, which I think is kind of poetic, Churchill in Manitoba, which was on the Hudson Bay. So it had access to port facilities. But ultimately, the Canadians said no, because they were concerned about the implications of testing in a pristine landscape like that. So the British then went through all their old colonies. They tried a whole range of different places. There was parts of the Caribbean, parts of Africa, Somaliland. They even looked at some of their own territory briefly, Scotland, the Hebrides. Very quickly, that was shut down as politically unpopular. And in fact, legislation was passed that made it illegal to test fission weapons on their own soil. That's interesting. Were they looking for something that was a bit like New Mexico in that respect, that sort of desert landscape? Was that their thinking? Not initially, no. Initially, because William Penny, who was in charge of the weapons development program, he wanted to test in a maritime environment. And so initially they were looking at islands and that's how Montebello came up on their radar because Britain was a maritime nation and they were very interested to find out what would happen if a nuclear weapon was detonated in a port and they felt that that was a likely scenario. Remembering that this was in the context, once the Soviets tested their weapon in 1949 and then rapidly built their nuclear arsenal from there, this was in a context of a belief that nuclear war was imminent. And so the British were particularly interested in scenarios that would be likely in their nation. And so maritime test was deemed to be the most urgent and the most important. So that was their first kind of test. And even the Americans hadn't done that sort of test. So it was the very first time. So the very first British test was a maritime test at an island. And so they were looking for Ireland. They even looked at Groot Island off Australia, so several different places. But 
1950, September 1950, Clement Attlee picked up the phone to speak to Robert Menzies to ask about the use of Montebello because that is one of the possibilities as an island location. And Montebello is off the coast of Western Australia. It's uninhabited. It's several hundred kilometres, isn't it, off the coast of Western Australia? So it was at least a bit of a distance away from human life. Pity about the fish. Yes, it was. It was a very ecologically rich environment. And in fact, the survey that the British instigated called Operation Epicure, which was a sort of a survey of the islands, they found a lot of biological samples and geological samples, which ended up back in British museums. It was a pristine environment. And also with nuclear weapons testing, all the fallout went to Australia anyway. But even before Hurricane, which was October of 1952, they knew that they would need a terrestrial site as well because they had in production and hur- in Hurricane, Britain, I should just say, was the name given, the code name for the Montebello test. That's correct. Yeah. So that was the very first test, the maritime test, Operation Hurricane, in which the bomb, a plutonium fission device, was placed into the hull of a ship called HMS Plym, which was surplus to requirements after the war. It was a British ship and it was steamed all the way from Britain around the Cape and it was quite a long journey. They didn't at that point want to take the ship through the Suez Canal because they felt that it was unsafe. The plutonium heart of the bomb actually was flown out on on a seaplane in various stages and they assembled the bomb once they were in Australia. So that weapon was 25 kilotons, which is a very, very large fission weapon. The bomb dropped on Hiroshima was 15 kilotons, so that gives you a bit of an idea. It was a very large weapon. Yeah. And it was deemed to be a success. It was a design that was known as Blue Danube, which had been created by William Penny. And he had drawn upon his understanding of the bomb dropped on Nagasaki. It's rather similar. Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs were quite different from each other, different designs, different fuel. So William Penny had drawn upon the plutonium weapon created by the Manhattan Project to drop on Nagasaki, but it had some features that made it unique to the British program. And I know for a fact, because I've seen the documents, that Churchill and others high up in the British government were not at all convinced it was going to work. So they had three different media releases ready to go, depending on what happened, including death of William Penny. Oh, goodness. Who was obviously, (laughs) yes, yes, and all his team. So were William Penny and his team, were they on on the island observing the test or how close were they to the actual nuclear test, the Montebello test? They were on a ship. They were were on a ship ship called the Campania. There were about four ships there. The Australian party was on a different ship called the Narvik. And I think from memory, they're about five kilometres away from ground zero. So that's pretty damn close, actually. Yeah. So he gave the order. There are photos of him with his binoculars looking at the explosion. It was successful and he was knighted very soon after that happened. But it's interesting to note that on his way to Montebello, Penny actually went to South Australia because Emu Field had already been identified. And where's so Emu Field knew. in South Australia, Liz? Can you paint a picture on the map where that is? It's very remote. Now, you're probably familiar with Woomera and Woomera being the base for rocket testing, and it had been since the mid-1940s for British rockets. And there was the Woomera prohibited area, which covered a huge chunk of South Australia, and it sort of went out from the township of Woomera out west towards the Western Australian border and then up towards the Northern Territory border. So it was a very large chunk. Now, the Trans-Australian Railway Line is kind of at the lower reaches or just below where Maralinga was. So if you can picture that, Maralinga is kind of the western part of South Australia, just above the railway line. Now, then from there, you go up about 200 kilometres due north, and that's where you find Emu Field. So it's probably closer to the Northern Territory border. So William Penny's on his way to Montebello. He stops at Emu Field. And this obviously is all with the agreement of the Australian government. So Robert Menzies has agreed with the British government that Australia will host the Montebello tests and also that William Penny will have a look around for some terrestrial tests as well. Well, not only that, but yes, in fact, the Australian government and particularly the Department of Supply had assigned Len Bedell, the Australian surveyor, to find 
a site and he went out. He was already associated with the Woomera rocket testing and he remembered, he and the chief scientist for the Department of Supply, Alan Butement, they, between them, remembered a clay pan called Dingo, which they thought might be significant. So Bedell went to the Dingo clay pan That clay pan wasn't significant, but from there he went up in a helicopter and he looked around the terrain and he found another clay pan, which was very straight and flat, and it was nearly two kilometres long. And that was deemed to be suitable as an airstrip. And so that is why EMU was chosen, because there needed to be a way to land aircraft. And so what Bedell did, he managed to get, with great logistic difficulty, he got about six Land Rovers to the site. And then William Penny was flown to the EMU clay pan and they lined the Land Rovers up along the side of the clay pan, put their headlights in, and that sort of guided the plane into land. And that was the first that uh, William Penny saw. Makeshift landing strip. (laughs) And I've been to the clay pan and... It is a dramatic, you know, long stretch, but it must have been extraordinary when there was absolutely nothing there except these Land Rovers to guide them in. And the pilots, there were two planes that landed that day and both pilots had to be have the highest level of security clearance because it was so secret. And Emu Field actually was probably the most secret of all the test series, you know, the totem series that was held there. Very, very secret. But the reason they needed to switch from the maritime environment to the terrestrial environment was that... The British were developing new bombers called the V-bombers, which were coming off the production line in the mid-1950s. And they knew that their first deployable operational atomic weapon needed to be able to be used to deploy to the V-bombers. And so although out of curiosity they did the maritime test, ultimately for operational reasons they needed to test terrestrially to make sure that the bombs were suitable for the V-bombers. And they also had virtually no money and virtually no uranium and they were trying to do it on the cheap. So Operation Totem was all about trying to create a really cheap, I call it the austerity bomb, a really cheap (laughs) weapon. And because they cut corners, it made the weapon more unstable. And ultimately, the bombs that were tested at EMU Field did not go into operational deployment because there's some surmise in this. That's why I'm hesitating because some of the records are still classified. But ultimately, they had to change the design to deploy to the RAF because they had cut too many corners. Oh, right. So so they've selected Emu Field and then they go on to select Maralinga. What were the assurances that the British were giving the Australians about the environmental impacts? You were saying the Canadians had said, no, no, we don't want our pristine Arctic environment destroyed, thank you very much. The outback South Australia obviously was considered by, at the time, to be largely uninhabited, not obviously with much regard to the local Indigenous inhabitants. What were the environmental assurances that the British gave the Australians? They were consistently soothing words that were given to the Australian government. And the British actually had no business making those assurances because they didn't actually know. And they had fairly limited understanding themselves. They certainly had drawn upon the experience in the Manhattan Project. They knew some things, but they were quite underdone, certainly in an Australian environment, which had particular meteorological characteristics, particular geographical characteristics, leaving aside the problems associated with detonating bombs in people's homelands. But they consistently assured the Australian government that everything was fine. And for the first two test series, so for Hurricane and Totem, Montebello and Emu Field, the Australian government did not have a mechanism for for examining the safety aspects of those tests. Liz, were you aware of, in your research, any Australian scientists or even British scientists who were alerting their superiors to their concerns around the health effects or the environmental effects? Because presumably they had been observed at other test sites in previously. There are very few voices heard about this, but one that you should know about is a very important one. A CSIRO scientist called Hedley Marston, who was based in Adelaide, He was actually an agricultural scientist. He worked with livestock and that kind of thing. And he was commissioned by 
an organisation known as the Australian Atomic Weapons Test Safety Committee. Now, that organisation was only set up in 1955, so after the first two series. And in its first incarnation, it was headed by Leslie Martin, the Australian defence scientist, who was a decent, knowledgeable person. And Ernest Titterton was a member of that committee. But a couple of years later, when it was reconstituted, Ernest Titterton became the head of that committee and became highly problematic when we think about safety and other issues. But just thinking now about Headley Marston, he was commissioned to test the thyroid glands of livestock who were thought to be in range of the fallout. And he exceeded his brief. He started to get very worried about what was happening. He set up testing stations in Adelaide and he also did something that they weren't expecting. He measured radioactive iodine in the thyroid glands of animals and he used that as a proxy for another kind of radioactive isotope, strontium, which is a very nasty bone-seeking, cancer-causing isotope. Anyway, he prepared an article for scientific publication in which he drew attention to these risks. And this is at Maralinga, 1956, Operation Buffalo. And he was doing all his testing around that time. And he prepared an article for publication which sounded the alarm about the risks. And Ernest Titterton was among those who censored him who refused to allow him to publish. And do we know the reason why he was censored? Was it because the military urgency of getting these weapons fit for purpose far outweighed in their eyes the the health and environmental impacts or possible health and environmental impacts? That was part of it. Yes, that was certainly part of it. But Titterton was very much a member of the so-called nuclear elite in Britain. Even though he was in Australia, employed by the Australian National mm. University, but his allegiance was very much with the nuclear elite and he didn't want anything to hold things up. But also he in particular was angry that Marston had gone beyond what he was expected to do. So there were various tests being done on animals and terrain. They had places around the country where they had sticky paper where they were collecting radioactive dust and that sort of thing. So this was just part of that. And Titterton in particular thought that Marston had gone on his own project without it being cleared by the Atomic Weapons Test Safety Committee. And so they didn't like his freelancing and they certainly didn't like the fact that it was drawing attention to a real risk because Hedley Marston was among those people who detected a risk in the school milk program. So school children, certainly when I was a little kid in Adelaide, much after this, but everyone was made to drink milk that had been sitting in the sun. Well, the school milk program, radioactivity was getting into the food chain, including into the milk program. And so Hedley Marston was drawing attention to that. And the Atomic Weapons Test Safety Committee, particularly Ernest Titterton, didn't like that. So the head of CSIRO was drawn into that argument, Fred White, and ultimately what happened is that article, he had to take out a lot of the controversial stuff and he only was able to publish the non-controversial stuff and that's how it ended up. Liz, this was basically all conducted in secret, but the media eventually was allowed in under certain conditions to report on the tests. And then, of course, giving a sanitised version of events to the general public in Australia. Can you talk me through how that was managed? Because a lot of what comes out, of course, in the Royal Commission in 84, 85 into the Maralinga tests was about the lack of transparency and a lack of sort of democratic accountability of this, which is a feature of the Cold War and the decisions that were being made through that time and a feature of all wars, of course, that there's a military imperative that overrides the rule of law in a time of crisis. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's actually a very interesting story. And it was a very, very secret story until a whistleblower in the mid-60s revealed to the Australian public the existence of so-called D-notices. Now, D-notices play a central role in the way the media conducted itself around the tests. So Britain had D-notices, which also called defence notices, since the First World War and had lobbied Australia on and off since the First World War to develop D-notices in Australia as well. But they never really got anywhere until Australia agreed to the atomic weapons tests. And so Robert Menzies did agree in the early 50s Around about the time he agreed to the first Montebello test, he also agreed to the establishment of D-notices, and that involved 
the setting up of a secret defence and media committee. And it's very interesting what a role Menzies played in that. He took a real personal interest in it and he attended the first meeting of that committee in Melbourne. I think he attended subsequent meetings too, but he was certainly present there. He didn't chair the meeting, but he was present at that first meeting. And that was made up of all the services, representatives at a high level of all the military services, high-level public servants, but also all the members or the leaders of the Australian media at the time. Now, defence notices were not legislated. They were voluntary agreements entered into by the Australian media. They were a form of self-censorship and every single media proprietor agreed to them Partly, and I've sort of looked into this in my research, partly because they felt flattered to be considered to be national security insiders. And so at the first meeting, they agreed to the idea of denotices and started to set out a few parameters around it. Subsequent meetings, they got narrowed down. And then a denotice was issued for the hurricane test in 1952, which put strict limits on what they could report. And in fact, Journalists were not allowed into the official party at the Montebello Islands, but they did set themselves up at a place on the mainland called Mount Potter, where they used long lenses and they could actually capture images. And the British authorities, who didn't want anything to do with the media, hated the media, but they recognised that you can't really keep mushroom cloud secret. No, and no. so There'd have been someone, surely, going by who would have gone, oh, that is a very unusual meteorological phenomenon over there. Indeed. And so yeah. they also started to recognise the propaganda value of getting journalists into the official party. And so for the totem test a year later in 1953, the, the first totem test anyway, the second one was so secret that hardly anyone was there, but... For the first one, they actually flew 12 journalists in a plane that had its windows covered with canvas so they couldn't see where they were. And they were flown and they were landed on the clay pan and they were given a breakfast of whiskey and curry and the bomb was detonated at 7am. I don't know what sort of shape they were in at that point. So the media is reporting in a limited way the atomic weapon tests and the media is obviously sort of complicit in some level of secrecy around this, but there is some reporting. So what's the public's reaction? It was pretty patriotic, wasn't it? It was indeed, yes, particularly the pre-Maralinga tests, a very patriotic reaction. It was a sense that Australia was doing its bit. It was providing something that Britain didn't have in its own country, which was lots of space. There was absolutely nothing, no attention paid to what that was doing to the Aboriginal populations who were affected. And that's the most tragic, I think, part of the story is what happened with them. But yes, overwhel- and it was also bipartisan. So the Labor Party was on side in the early stages. It stopped being bipartisan in 1956 because there are a number of things happening in the world beyond our borders at that time. So the Americans were testing in the Pacific and they were testing hydrogen bombs, which are much bigger than the atomic bombs being tested in Australia. And there was a famous incident where during one of the American tests in the Pacific, a Japanese fishing boat had gone into the ground zero area and one of the fishermen had died and the others had got sick. And that had received quite a bit of publicity in Australia and elsewhere. People started to get a bit worried. Also, there was campaign for nuclear disarmament starting up in different parts of the world. There was a thing called the Pugwash Conference, which was scientists who were opposed to atmospheric testing or proliferation of nuclear weapons. So things became more complicated in Australia from 1956. In fact, just at the moment that Maralinga was being opened, which was in September of 1956, the Australian public started to get a bit more concerned and there was more open consternation about what the British were doing and why do we have this permanent site suddenly in the Australian outback when all these terrible things are happening. There was certainly a lot of scientific concern about atmospheric testing by then as well and the levels of strontium and other fission products in the atmosphere. And so the tide sort of turned a bit and then the Labor Party withdrew its support in 1956. So it did change after that. Liz, the British, despite this split in the partisan support for the nuclear tests and the concern rising in the public about the impact of these tests. The British continued to test until the 60s. What did they do to clean up? I think it was a pretty shoddy episode, wasn't it? 
It certainly was. So the last of the major tests at Maralink were held in 1957, Operation Antler. Two of the bombs were fairly small. The last one was Vega's hurricane. It was huge. And then no more major tests, but they continued with what they called minor trials. And these actually left worse contamination, particularly the tests known as Vixen B, which were held between 1960 and 1963. They took 22 kilos of plutonium-239, one of the most toxic substances ever, and they used conventional explosives to blow it up. And it created these large plumes that came back down to earth. It also imbued plutonium-239 into a, a lot of the metal scaffolds and other things on the site. So 22 kilos of plutonium-239 would be easily enough to kill everyone on the planet. And they basically just left it there. They had two cleanups, one called Hercules, or Hercules 5, actually, after the fifth labour of Hercules, cleaning the organ stables. And it was famously impossible mission for Hercules to clean the organ stables. That's why they called it Hercules. And that was not based on a survey. That was just based on what they thought might work. And they just ploughed everything up and made it worse, actually. Three years later, they did Operation Brumby, which was based upon a radiation survey the year before 66 called RADSUR. So at least it was based on a bit of data. But unfortunately, the methodological approach to the data gathering was flawed. And so they were not picking up where all the main bits of radiation were on the site. It was highly flawed and it was carried out by low-level military personnel who didn't know what they were doing. They had no physics training. They gathered this data according to a pattern they were given by a British scientist. And it was hopeless and so bad as to be useless. And did the Australian government go in and verify that cleanup had been done properly or did they just accept the British word that, oh, yeah, we've cleaned it up, No, nothing to see here? (laughs) It's actually really a worry to find that they just accepted the Pierce report, as it was known, named after Noah Pierce, the British scientist who ran Radso and also Brumby. The Pierce report was out by a factor of 10, but the Australian government did not question it. It was taken as the final word on contamination at the site. So the Pierce think, report. Why do you think that was? Was it because they just wanted to move on, or did they just blithely believe the British? I mean, was it negligence or. As one person who was the Secretary of the Atomic Weapons Test Safety Committee put it, it was ungentlemanly to question the British, Uh, and so they didn't. It was considered rude, and so they believed, and it was partly because Ernest Titterton, who was by then chair of the Atomic Weapons Test Safety Committee, the Australians trusted him. They started not to trust him a bit later, but they trusted him at the point when they were being asked to agree to the Vixen B tests. And Titterton was assuring them that they were perfectly safe. And at that point, the Australian government had no real reason not to trust him. But what they didn't realise, and it came out later in the Royal Commission and later still in other forms of analysis, that Ernest Titterton had cut off the information flow between the British and the Australian government. And so he, for his own reasons, which were to do with his loyalty to the British and his vast enthusiasm for nuclear weaponry and energy and for his cavalier approach to safety around both of those things, he basically said, they don't need to know it. They don't need to know this stuff, so we will not tell them. And the Australian Department of Defence started to get a bit wary of Titterton Towards the end of Vixen B, they started to ask a few more questions. But ultimately, by 1967, Australia was pretty much not interested anymore. Like, it's out in the desert, we don't want to know, and we're going to trust the Pierce report. We have this wonderful report, Mm. which incidentally is only something like 51 pages. It's actually quite cursory. And it's only because in the mid-'70s, a whistleblower in particular, Avon Hudson, who had been at Maralinga during Vixen B. He started to get very concerned. He started to blow the whistle. And then Tom Uren, the Labor minister, took this on as an issue. Brian Tui, the investigative journalist, took it on as an issue. And then things started to change. And although notionally the D notices were still in place, they were no longer abided by. And most media people didn't even know about them. So 
the era of uncovering really started in the seventies, and, and by that stage, the D notices were twenty years old. So, yeah, the next generation of journalists would have taken over. But Liz, in the sort of concluding moments of our discussion today, you've written about the horrible impacts on the local Indigenous communities around these test sites. There's some quite sort of shocking personal testimony from some of the relatives who experienced these, whose parents experienced the nuclear test and the fallout from them. But what are the lessons we can draw from this period of Australia's history, do you think? It's very interesting. I'm a great believer in transparency and in taking the public into the confidence of the government. I think this is quite a striking example of that not happening, of the public not being informed and not therefore being able to give informed consent. And so I would say open government Now, having said that, I do accept that when it comes to defence science and national security, there are some secrets that need to be kept. But I think that there was excessive secrecy in this case and the secrecy was ongoing and it took whistleblowers and it took a Royal Commission and then it took another investigative journalist in the early 90s to sort of blow this apart. And in the meantime, people could enter that site and walk freely and take home rocks imbued with plutonium The site, Maralinga, was not safe for many years. And if the government had been more open and there'd been more questions asked and more public discussion, I think that lack of safety would have been addressed much sooner. But it was only in the mid-90s that the final cleanup took place, and even that was quite problematic. But at least it did most likely make the site a lot less dangerous than it had been. So I think the main lesson for me is in a democratic society, I think that there needs to be full disclosure and public discussion about things that are quite harmful, as this really was for a number of people. But of course, at the time, Aboriginal people weren't counted in the census and their births and deaths were not recorded. And there was very little baseline health data about their populations. And therefore, these harms occurred without anyone even knowing that they had occurred. And I find that really unacceptable in a democratic society. Yeah, very, very sad legacy of this period in history. And you're very right to draw on the importance of ability to scrutinise government decision-making that's made in our interest, of course. But there is always that tension with security and the need for some level of confidentiality particularly in a time of war like, you know, the Cold War was. And it's hard for us sitting in 2022 to imagine the real fear of a third world war and not just a third world war, a nuclear war and what was going on in the USSR and how was Australia able to address that. These drove a lot of those decisions which we can look back and say were not in the spirit of democracy and the rule of law, but of course were taken with a lot of concern about the security environment in which the country operated and the broader Western world operated. Liz Tynan, thank you so much for joining me on Afternoon Light to talk about the British atomic tests in Australia in the 50s and 60s and the enduring legacy that they leave on democracy, on our relationship with Indigenous people in this country and of course our relationship with our allies too. So thank you very much Liz. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Georgina. Thank you so much for your interest. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.